On this week's episode of Slashers, we continue our Beecher Creature features with another movie by Joe Dante featuring tiny things that make big trouble. Stay tuned until the end of the episode for a special track from Sissy Fit. shocked by a great white shark now you're at the mercy of 10,000 jaws this is slashers a podcast about movies and horror for those who love horror my name is jake and with me for the first time in a little bit is my esteemed colleague co-host and cohort jim the jimothy jim bob jim turn how the hell are you say hello to the mutant goons from beyond back back again jimmy's back Tell your friend. What's that. up, fuck boys? Wee, wee, wee. Dude, I'm gonna try and I'm gonna download an MP3 from a Russian website of that DJ horn sound effect just to put in this episode for you. And <laughs> here you go. So, Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on. This is technically the second episode that you've been on after the corona hiatus because we do a weekly Patreon bonus episode if you're at the correct tier. No big deal. Have to plug it. Sorry, I got to pay the bills. But Jim, what have you been doing in the interim, my good friend? I have been taking the worst type of class you ever want to take online, chemistry. Yeah. I've been gardening. Yes. And I've been playing, playing with my two-year-old son a lot, which has been awesome. That makes me super happy. I love that. Like one of the things that's probably the coolest about being in this horror community and kind of building the following that we have, you know, we have followers who have kids, we have followers who don't have kids. And it's so nice to just have people be like, that's awesome. A a very generally positive attitude. Because when I was in like the hardcore music scene or like the comic scene, very often people will disparage the other side where you'll have like the people with kids be like, you don't know what it means to be tired until you've had a kid. And then you have the other people who are like, I like having money. Fuck you. So it's pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks for everybody for being cool about us being dads. Yeah, there's a lot of animosity. Weird, right? Hey, just let people live. One of my favorite things I've ever seen was this lady who like posted online with this like meh, meh, face of like, you don't know what tired is and whatever. This guy was like, imagine feeling this entitled because you let someone come inside you. And I was like, holy <laughs> shit. It was like, that's violence. That is literally an act of violence. If somebody said that to my wife, I'd be like, objectively what you said is true but it's not a polite way of saying it okay (laughs) so jim this this movie was your idea kind of took me by surprise what are we talking about this week piranha 1978 good point because 1972 that piranha sucks 1995 not good the remake 2010 pretty legit the sequel to the remake is fine i haven't seen anything but this one oh you you didn't see the piranha 2 the spawning no it's fine it's not good. I don't know. I mean, after, uh, I don't know. After this one, I, I'm not sure I'd want to watch another, the sequel. Yeah, I think you just skip the everything like, and then get to the ones where they have the CG because it's kind of a fun juxtaposition. Yeah, I mean, and I've, I, the new ones, so 3D and 3DD, like the only perception I have of it is like that's supposed to be ridiculous, right? Oh, yeah, it's great. It's the only 3D I've ever liked in a theater. Like you had 3D underwater lesbian titties. You had Jerry O'Connell's dick being chopped off and spit at you. You had a, like a chocolate shake or a strawberry shake thrown at you. It was just campy and silly and stupid. But that's why, like, I love Friday the 13th 3D. A, you get the hockey mask, but then B, you get like the arrow through the eye to the camera and like those hokey things that are fun. But it's like, that's the fun of it. You know, I always resent like 3D movies where it's not tongue in cheek, you know, like A, don't try and actually mesmerize me because you're going to fail. And then B, don't like not put anything in because then I'm just going to feel ripped off. So do you have any ideas why 3D TVs didn't didn't take off? Because they're a bajillion fucking (laughs) dollars. God, I just like I'm thinking about it now because now we have all these movies like these movies that are literally 3D in the name. Right. Yeah. And you can't even enjoy the 3D titties in your face anymore. Bullshit. Uh, Or like when you watch My Bloody Valentine 3D and it's like the one thing is a stupid pickaxe flying at you. You're like, oh, hot dog. (laughs) Has your kid got on the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? A little bit. He doesn't really. He's been kind of interested in some things. He really likes Coco. Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, I love that movie. So I made the mistake of showing my kid they might be giants. You know, Particle Man and Istanbul and all those. And then Mickey Mouse Clubhouse comes on there because they did the theme song. 
And now my life is Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. You know this, Jim, you and I have talked about this. I love the movie Willow probably a little too much, right? We've talked about it. It's a little obscene how much I like that movie. This morning, my kid gets up and she goes, Daddy, watch Willow. And I was like, <laughs> you know what? I have to go to work right now. But when I get home from work, you and I, we're going to sit the fuck down and watch some Willow. So I get home, pull out Disney Plus, go to Willow. And she goes, Toy Story? <laughs> Mickey Mouse Clubhouse? And I was like, you motherfucker. You just wanted me to pull up Disney Plus so you could. And I was like, no, we're watching Willow and you're going to like it. And I was like, oh, my God, I've become my dad. <laughs> yeah, I know. He, my son's like, he has certain things that he watches. And then, so, you know, living in Southern California and going to Disneyland a lot. Yeah. He is obsessed with It's a Small World. Yeah. So is like, it's, it's like weird, so right? Just like shrieking when they get on it. Yeah, so now we watch, you know, 4K point of view ride throughs. Oh, <laughs> it's a small world. <laughs> That's actually a good idea. We haven't done that, but I might steal that idea. I, I, be careful, though. It's, you know, and then your kids just going to be running around going, it's a small world, small world. And you're never watching Willow again. You know what we should do? We should put piranhas in the little boat river thing <laughs> in small world. Be a hell of a lot smaller world when they're done getting chomped on. Am I right, dog? Hey, <laughs> hey. Oh, man. So there were a ton of taglines for this film. I have them in the notes. Is there any other one that you like besides the mercy of 10,000 jaws or a thousand jaws, which I think is pretty great? I like that one. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum is they're here and they're hungry. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay. That could be about anything. That could be about Karen's getting out of Mervyn's and with their mom jeans (laughs) going over to, you know, Panera bread. Yeah, it's so mundane. And it, they, you know, it's like it's kind of funny reading them because there's like a little bit of a progression. It's like they're here, hungry for flesh. Who can stop them? Right. And some of them are like rambling, like who can stop them? What is going on here? I just feel like there's some guy who's like disheveled and be like, what's going happening here? But I do like the the first one you read, and then uh, this one too is it feels like uh, something like some not mythology, but like something like grand, very grandiose, right? Yeah. The second one. Like they came down the river in their thousands. Their teeth could strip the living man to the bone in seconds. Yeah, dude. That sounds like something that like some character in a mythical story says. You know, oh, you must take the path to the crystal boats because if you don't, your flesh will be ripped from your bones by the thousands. Yeah. I'm getting the vibes of like 13th warrior, like the old hag. Yeah. Like, <laughs> So I was talking to Chad today, you know, producer Chad, and we were talking about how we still want to make a Slashers movie. I am dead fucking set, dude. I would love to make a sequel to the 13th Warrior unofficially. So if you'd like to do that, if you want to be an unpaid extra and you have a green screen, let us know. SlashersPod at gmail.com. I'm going to make this happen. I've decided. It's weird that I love these terrible movies, right? Like, I know objectively Willow's not that good, but to me, like, I've often said, like, I would rather watch Willow three times in a row than the original Star Wars trilogy once. And it's not just trolling. And I know objectively it's not as good, but I love it. Same with 13th Warrior. Yeah, I mean, oh, th- we, yeah, we did an episode on 13th Warrior. If you haven't watched it, please go boost those numbers because they suck. Do. They suck <laughs> hard, dude. Everybody's like, you did Michael Crichton's worst book. Fuck you. And I'm like, whoa. But, um, Speaking of Star Wars, like we've been we've been uh, binge watch or not binge watching. We've been like marathoning Star Wars every single movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You the about last month. And but, uh, where do you stand on it? Do you love it more or less than you used to? So we watch them in chronological order and I get some booze for that. But so we, chronological so we being the original three, the prequel and the sequel. No, three? We watch them in like in in universe chronological. Oh, OK, gotcha. So we started with the prequels and then we watched uh, Rogue One and then we did the originals and then we did the new uh, saga. My God, I hate the new saga so much. Yeah. It is so hard. The first one is okay, but the second one was so hard to get through. Yeah, dude, that's unforgivable. We've started watching the third one and we haven't because finish it. But I look so like. I've said this a thousand times. Like you guys can tell, if you're listening, you know that I love the I love seeing how the sausage is made when it comes to movies. So I'll give a lot of shitty movies a lot of credit, right? Like I've even said, like I like Justice League because I thought it's amazing they made any movie at all when you consider the circumstances, and that's the way I feel about the Rise of Skywalker. If you don't take into account like the terrible conditions upon which, like if you don't give it the handicap, it's a jarbled mess of a movie. It doesn't make any fucking sense, and it's too much going on. But when you're like, huh, 
the movie before it ended without a villain that was kind of a joke. And you like, where do you go from there? I think it's kind of spectacular in that way. But otherwise, you're just like, Ugh. yeah. I, the the only thing I can say about them is that there are individual moments that I really like, but cohesive story. I just could care less of how they treated all the characters, how Luke got done dirty. I just, oh my I don't god, like how embarrassing him. is that, right? Yeah. Compare the Luke from the fucking comic books or the Luke from the books, and you're just like, who is this guy? Who is this old curmudgeon who's sucking tit milk? What the fuck? <laughs> I know. After reading like the Thrawn series, and and it's it's just hard. And this is nothing new. I know there's a lot of you know hate that was given to these movies, but. Well, and it's, you know, it is the exact antithesis of Piranha, not just to like drag it back to the original source, material, but like Piranha is not a movie made by committee. It is a movie made by like five people with Roger Corman being like, hey, can you do it cheaper than do it cheaper? That's like the only instruction that they got <laughs> versus, you know, the other one. It's like we have to have the consigliere who's like, we must have these moments and this and this and this. And then we have to have test screenings and these people have, like, do you think they did one test screening of Piranha? Like, do you honestly think? that they sat a bunch of people down in a room and were like, hey, Midwestern housewife, what did you think of this movie? No, not when they're paying, you know, extras, nothing and lunch. Yeah, right. Five bucks <laughs> in the lunch box. Reading this shit. Yeah, it's pretty standard Corman stuff, dude. Like it literally doesn't get cheaper and it's amazing. But that's, I mean, how you get to make a trillion movies like he did too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not in the, in the industry, especially nowadays. I couldn't even imagine trying to make a movie but like back then, it's just like you do what you got to do and you're doing it because you like making films and you just got it done. Yeah. Dude, the amount of filmmakers who are like, oh, I didn't have a permit. I just grabbed a camera. We just went for like Wes Craven when he made you know, The Last House on the Left. They were throwing a camera over a fence and like trespassing to film that movie. And like, what the fuck? Like, you can't imagine that now. Workers compensation insurance and shit. So I love these gritty movies like. Shall we get into the statistics for this week? Let's do it. So this movie's made on a budget of between six hundred and seven hundred and seventy thousand dollars. When was the last freaking time we did a movie on this show that didn't have at least a million dollar budget? I can't even remember. Bad taste. Bad taste. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I, we might have done something. No, that's probably it, though, dude. Oh. At least a movie I like this much. Yeah. That. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So it grossed a whopping $16 million at the box office, which when we get into the competition is going to kind of blow your mind. So it's released August 3rd, 1978. So by this point, Jaws has been out for years. And, you know, it's to the point where Jaws 2 is coming out. Jaws 2 came out uh, roughly two, two months, months before, before on the 16th. But let me just wrap at you about the year of 1978. And this isn't even all of the movies I love from this era. Dawn of the Dead, April 20th, Jaws 2, June 16th, The Swarm, which actually several actors from this film were in about a swarm of killer bees, 714, Animal House, 728, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, 1020, The Original Halloween, 1025. So going just back to that summer, this movie overlaps tremendously with The Swarm and Animal House. So it's amazing that it got that kind of aplomb at the time. Do you agree? It really is amazing. I mean, just coming out two months after Jaws 2 alone. Yeah, like, right? <laughs> it's like, it's, it's mini Jaws. Right. I wonder how much more money they would have made if they had, you know, beat Jaws 2 to theaters by like a week or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And then Jaws could have advertised using this. So fun that we talk about Jaws. So originally Universal Pictures almost sued New World to at least limit to get some kind of an injunction against the direct competition of Piranha to Jaws 2. But Steven Spielberg saw Piranha and said, it's the best ripoff of Jaws we have. They have my blessing. They can keep going. I love that. It's so amazing. And it's earnest because he ends up working with Joe Dante years later. I mean, it's crazy. You had Gremlins, you had Twilight Zone, the movie, and it's awesome. And it's cool because this one silly little movie, this one Roger Corman bit ends up becoming a career launching off point for some and like a stable workforce. When we get into the nicknames for this episode, dude, it's hilarious how many times these guys go back to working with Joe Dante because they worked with him on this film. Because at the time he did this, he'd only ever done Hollywood Boulevard. He had like co-directed Rock and Roll High School with Alan Arkish, but that's it. Other than that, that's his whole career besides editing right. trailers for Corman. So anyway, I'm getting ahead of ourselves. Runtime, <laughs> 95 minutes. What do you think? 
I think it's a little long, but that's also me in 2020 talking about a movie in 1978 where I personally have a hard time watching older movies. That's fair. I think here's my thing. If they cut out five minutes, I'm exactly easy peasy happy. If they want to keep the 75, you got to bring back the fucking Ray Harryhausen creature and make him like an integral part. Because just seeing him on screen made me feel like an exuberant child again instead of a cranky man whose world is dying around him. Yeah, I didn't I didn't understand that what that was. It was awesome. It was distilled (laughs) awesome. They had a seance and communed with the essences of the cosmos and pulled the awesome out of everything. Like Goku (laughs) with a fucking spirit bomb took all the awesome and distilled it into that one weird character. It's awesome. It's so it's so out of place and bizarre. But in that, it's perfect, right? (laughs) Well, I honestly wonder because, you know, there's no secret here. Joe Dante is the director of Gremlins and Gremlins 2, the new batch. And I wonder how much that influences him getting those kinds of jobs. You know what I mean? Like just that one quirky decision to have that because the original script was just a force of nature script. It was just like Jaws. It wasn't until they had the rewrites come through that it ends up getting that more sci-fi military industrial complex like subtext from John Sayles. So I don't know. I'm into it because I think that one if without that one little creature and the time and effort it took to do that, I wonder if we get gremlins looking the same and being the same as it is. Yeah, you think when they, they're looking for a director for Gremlins, I don't remember how much Joe Dante was involved outside of directing. But when they say they're looking for the director, they're like, you remember what Joe Dante did in Piranha? You know, like that would be perfect. Like he ha- he knows what, you know, that little bit to sell them on something like that. Yeah. That makes sense. And with the budget that he had, because remember, so Gremlins had a budget of $11 million, which sounds like a lot. When you factor in how many different puppets and different, armatures and everything that they created for it. I mean, they were talking about making the stuff on set and final, like the day that they finalized uh, Stripe with the skateboard was the day that they filmed it, you know? So you get a guy like this who hustles and gets it done. That's what I mean. Like that kind of guerrilla filming has a huge place. And that's why I love, you know, when you're seeing modernly, the guys who will put up, you know, their little movie on Vimeo and just kind of see what happens. It's, It's a really exciting time when it comes to filmmaking, I think. Jim agrees. Yeah, sorry. I had to check my focus up. So we already talked about it. Directed by Joe Dante. He had been a trailer editor for Corman and basically got offered, you know, you could do Rock and Roll High School. You want to do this. So his, his buddy wanted to do Rock and Roll High School. So he only did second unit directing for that. And then he said, and that I got the, quote, fish movie, end quote, which is pretty great. Because then Dante, you know, would later on go on to say that it was, quote, sort of a spoof of Jaws, though it plays pretty straight. So he knew, like, this is silly. I get it, but it's a foot in the door and it's it's good for what it is, you know? You it obviously stands yeah. out from its contemporaries. Obviously, you could say it's a ripoff, but I <laughs> it does enough to like would you not take that if you were an up and coming director? No. Like absolutely, I'd have to take like, it. Every single person would, right? How yeah. pretentious would you be like, "No, we're doing a Jaws ripoff. I'm not going to do it." <laughs> Seriously, and and so many people would like to look down their nose and be like, "Oh, I can't believe I scoff at this." And then it's like you realize this guy's having to pay off like his student loans. He's got to put food in his belly. Like, yeah, if it pays, that's the kind of job he wants. And like I said, by this point, he'd only ever directed Hollywood Boulevard. And that's it. If somebody's going to give you a joint like this, it's awesome. I think the biggest criminality when it comes to the presentation of this movie is the trailer, is the poster, because the poster implies that these are giant piranha, not little tiny guys. So when you see the poster for this, it's very emblematic of Jaws. You have the woman in the red bikini. You have the you know creature swimming up from the bottom of the depths. And it looks to scale like it's some giant creature feature. But in reality, it's little pieces of plastic on sticks. Right. <laughs> that you really never even see. Hardly ever see. Hardly, like, yeah. It's more just I that buzzing the, sound, right? Yeah, which was, did you read the... How they got that is like dental drills. Oh, God. <laughs> it fits. Which almost gives it, yeah, it gives it, it's a, makes it a little bit more terrifying. Yeah. And so Dante goes on to direct the Howling, Twilight's, or segments of the Twilight Zone movie. The it's a Good Life segment. Gremlins, Explorers, Inner Space, The Burbs, Gremlins 2, Small Soldiers. Uh, he did a, a bit on Nightmare Cinema, but. I have to, I didn't go into this in detail on our Gremlins episode, Jim, and I apologize. I have, I owe the fans a sincere apology. Did you know he was an executive producer in the 1996 Billy Zane classic, The Phantom? 
I unironically love that movie. It's amazing. If you don't like that movie, lose my number, eat 10 dicks and die. (laughs) Oh, man. Billy Zane. So uh, one of my favorite book series got picked up by Amazon Prime. Okay. Right. So it's it's Wheel of Time by Robert Jordan. Yeah. Right. Huge. Lots of people know about it. But prior to it being picked up, Billy Zane, I don't know if he was working with some company. I don't know. They wanted to put out like a little short couple minute, not a pilot, somewhat of a pilot, something to like show. I, I have no idea how this even came about, but he, he made this thing and is the worst goddamn thing I've ever seen made for this show. And like he, he, they tried to put it out to say like, Hey, like we could make this or something. Like a proof of concept. Know. Yeah. And it's like the most melodramatic, ridiculous thing I've ever seen. And I just, I can't even. But how awesome is Billy Zane in it? Cause he's awesome. Terrible. Terrible. Terribly awesome. Terrible. So in Zoolander, you know how it's supposed to be kind of like a, an in-joke where it's like, you should listen to your friend Billy Zane. He's a cool guy. I'm like, yes, you absolutely should because he's super cool. Like, I really think he's super cool. <laughs> so, yeah, we'll move on because I don't I don't know if you were being sarcastic there. And if you weren't being sarcastic and you were trying to hurt my feelings, that would make me really sad. Did you know <laughs> that Joe Dante also directed? I didn't know this, and it actually makes a lot of sense. He directed five episodes of Erie, Indiana, that show that came out around like the Goosebumps, Are You Afraid of the Dark era? Uh, super cool. I don't, it sounds familiar, but I don't know. I've seen it. It was just a generic, like it was kind of a, you know, similar show. It just, it followed one character instead of being vignettes or kind of an anthology series. Okay. Yeah. Nothing too great, but I thought I'd highlight it because he did a, a other horror TV, did a Twilight Zone episode, Masters of Horror, you know, Night Visions and whatnot, but we'll move on. So the script is originally written by Richard Robinson. He writes it and it, like I said, it's just a generic fucking movie. and. John Sayles had written a book that was very highly accredited at the time called Pride of the Bimbos, 1975. Pride of the Bimbos. And based on that, got to do this movie and thus highlighted and catapulted his career. Can you believe that? Like, what? How rad? It's like, of course, that movie would get Roger Corman's attention, right? This is so weird. So Pride of the Bimbos. Do you know what it's about? Bimbos that are prideful. (laughs) I saw, I'm looking. It looks like it's a baseball thing. I have no idea. It's so bizarre. It's a book about a dwarf who's a traveling baseball player who dresses in drag and plays against local teams. So kind of amazing. And that's something I'm probably ordering on Amazon because I don't know if you know this. You can actually buy books on Amazon still, not just everything else. <laughs> I was reminded the other week that Amazon started as a bookstore. I had completely forgotten that. Everything from A to Z. That's why it has that little arrow and everything. It's cutesy. But uh, yeah, so he goes from that. From this movie, he ended up doing Alligator, which is rad. It's also on Tubi for free, and you should watch it. Battle Beyond the Stars, The Howling. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that movie. Uh, He did the first draft of E.T. when it was called Night Skies and did a bunch of other things. Uh, But I mean, those are obviously he kind of peaked early. Uh, He did an uncredited amount of work on Apollo 13 back in the 90s. But that's, you know, to what extent he actually did it, I don't know. He's been involved quite a few things. Yeah, one of those guys who's just kind of around. You know what I mean? We're like, hey, that's cool. But like, not like a guy who's always around like Jeffrey Epstein was. We're like, oh, I now hate everybody, including Bill Gates. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, produced by Roger Corman, who's 94 years old. And if he dies this year, it will officially be the worst year in human history and the history of forever. Man. Snock on some wood there. Yeah, he's produced 385 films. Uh, He used to have American International Pictures, then did New World Pictures. I I go into this in another episode this month when we did uh, Humanoids from the Deep with our friend Doug Wap, where, you know, there's so many prolific directors, Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese, that he worked with. And like we were saying earlier, like when you have these people who want to act like they'd look down their nose, if, if Martin Scorsese would take a job with Roger Corman, yeah, you can bet your ass you should have. And, you know, some of it might be schlock, but it's, you know, it's an opportunity more than it's just schlock. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's almost uh, producing is kind of like there's a lot of you got to kind of throw throw things at the wall and see what sticks for some people. hundred percent. Because honestly, it's it's more consultative and it varies wildly as to what, you know, you what impact you have on the film itself. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm probably wrong because it's hard to, I, I don't pay too much attention, but 
I wouldn't say that there's like, I mean, there might be some, but I'd say most producers aren't just stuck to one thing, right? They're not just, I just produce very niche sci-fi or I just produce this. Like they, they produce because they know movies and they, they could, you know, they could do romance or they could do comedy. They could do sci-fi, Western space flicks, like whatever, you know? Yeah, I totally get what you're saying, you know, and it's hard for somebody like, you know, you see Scorsese now and you're like, oh, well, that guy, I mean, clearly this is what he does. Like this is his, his wheelhouse is he's only the guy who does these like kind of gritty crime drama things where people talk in a Boston accent and Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio just squints at the screen angrily. But then you have to look back at like the you know body of work that he had. And it starts with Roger Corman doing, oh, God, hold on. Doing boxcar Bertha, you know? <laughs> but the music was done by Giuseppe Pino Danaggio, who got paid a whopping 10 grand to do the entire score for the film. That's crazy. Yeah, right? For a complete original score. <laughs> yeah, when you think about, like, I don't know, the amount of work that I imagine goes into that, I might be an idiot, but that's just kind of nuts. I could see somebody doing that now because it's so, so much easier to do music production to do anything music wise because of technology with a garage band and everything. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you know, you find somebody that's, that knows how to, how to do it. You're like, here's $10,000. Like, but you know, back then it seems like that would have been an extensive amount of work. (laughs) You mean I got to go to the fucking store and buy analog tape? Fuck that. (laughs) So, uh, he also would come back to work with Dante on the howling as well. So that's pretty legit. He also did the Hercules with uh, Lou Ferrigno. So you should totally check that out because it's legitimate. I really unironically think that Lou Ferrigno is a national treasure and we should be so lucky to have him in our world and universe and cosmos. This one kind of threw me for a loop. Makeup by Rob Botton, 17 years old. Crazy, right? So our boy Ricky Rick Richard Baker, you know, the guy who did like every great movie you've ever seen in the history of forever. Uh, he was busy and was like, ah, you know what you should do? You should hire this child who's underage to do this movie and basically gives this kid his life and livelihood. You know, it's it's awesome. Did he go on to do anything of note after this? Rob Botton? Yes. Oh, dude. So Rob Botton's career is fucking legitimate. So he, at this point, he'd already done a little bit of work on King Kong, right? He does The Fog, Humanoids from the Deep, another Roger Corman flick that we already did an episode on, The Howling, The Thing, Explorers, The Witches of Eastwick, which if you've seen the you know makeup there is amazing, RoboCop, which is so gnarly, oh. Total Recall, where they have the prosthetic head, and Three Titties. Uh, Basic Instinct, where you get to see Sharon Stone's vagina. Seven, he's the dude who makes like the glutton and the, you know, all of those crazy, the sloth guy and everything. Mimic, he did Deep Rising. I'm sorry. You can't can't get around it. And he also did, a lot of people don't give credit to Botten for this, but he was, did Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, which has some really interesting effects when you look at some of the hallucinogenic scenes and stuff, specifically like the Lizard Lounge and whatnot. So, he has an incredible, impeccable career, and it's all because Rick Baker was too fucking busy. <laughs> yeah, he, at that point, he was working on stuff like Star Wars. And <laughs> so, he's worked, so he's worked with John Carpenter, Paul Verhoeven, David Fincher. <laughs> right? <laughs> and he started as a child on a movie where he put rubber fish on a stick and poked people with them. <laughs> so shall we whip into the nicknames? Snicknames. Prick names. So we have Bradford Dillman as Paul Grogan. Can we call him anything but the Brawny Man? The bra- <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you might remember he was in The Swarm, which came out the same year. Uh, he was in Mephisto's Waltz, which is notable because the Misfits had a B-side track called that. He was in Escape from Planet of the Apes. And what I thought was really interesting about this guy's career, he was in not one, but two films called Mastermind in 1969 and 1976, respectively. No way. Weird, right? That is weird. So... Moving on to Heather Menzies as Maggie McKeon. I have to call her there. There, uh, I don't mean to pull rank on you, Jim. I am making a declarative statement. Her name is Stunt Tits because 
there was a waitress who was working at the uh, Holiday Inn where the cast and crew was stationed during this, who was also an actress who they got to stand in for her titties because the lady was concerned that her husband would be pissed. <laughs> that's hilarious. Yep. Oh, that's my favorite bit of trivia for sure. That yeah. is. She was right, in the it. 1979 Captain America movie. So you should totally check that out because as a guy whose favorite superhero is Captain America, I'm a completionist and I will read and see anything with that character. So, yeah. Next, we had Kevin McCarthy as Dr. Robert Hoke. Really, he's just like the cranky old guy. He reminds me of like 10,000 other people. You know who he really reminds me of is Christopher Titus's dad on Titus. Do you remember that show? I do remember that show. Remember his cranky dad? Kind of. Let me see. I'm going to look it up. Stacy Keach, if you're going to look it up that way. You know, I, I was trying to think of who he looked like the entire time. And I went through his movies that he's been in. And I'm thinking like, do I remember him from Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Probably, but maybe. I don't know. But this guy makes so much more sense. Stacy Keach? Yeah. Yeah. We could call him Stacy Keach, or we could reference the because McCarthy had a great career in his own right. He was in Invasion, the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers. He was in the remake from '78. He was in the Misfits, which any fan of the band the Misfits will know was Marilyn Monroe's last movie, which is actually where the band got their namesake. Then later, because he befriended our good friend Joe Dante, does the Howling Twilight Zone inner space. But he does Golden Girls, UHF. Ghoulies 3, Ghoulies Go to College, and the Adams Family Reunion made for TV movie as Grandpa Adams. So this guy's career is sacrosanct. That's great. He has so much stuff. Can we call him like Dr. McCranky? Does that sound good to you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so then we go to Keenan Wynn as Jack. Really, I only mentioned him because he was in The Devil's Reign, also referenced by The Misfits, Orca, which we just an episode on, and Laser Blast. And anybody who's ever followed Red Letter Media would know Laser Blast is just an amazing feat to behold. Oh, this is the old guy that got his feet bit off. Yeah, so sad. His puppy's sad. What do you want to call him, like Footless Joe Jackson? There you go. Then we have Dr. Mengers, played by Barbara Steele. So she's just like the treacherous woman. And I don't really like that character type, so I don't know. I guess we could call her uh, setting back women's rights by 10 years. Huh? Huh? No? Yeah. Did you have anything better? <laughs> no. <laughs> no I, yeah, her character was bizarre. Probably the most bizarre of them all, right? Yeah, because she like totally is all about like licking up Stacey Keach's uh, booty hole stink. And then she's like, I'm evil. Okay. Yeah, it was weird. Well, you know what? We'll call her Dr. Evil. And then every time we say it, we'll put our pinky in our mouth. Ooh, there you go. That's why we should start doing the video podcast again. So people will see us putting our pinkies in our mouths. <laughs> you got the goddamn legend Dick Miller in this movie as Buck Gardner. Let me just wrap at you a couple things he was in. Little Shop of Horrors, Death Rays 2000, The Howling, Gremlins, Terminator, Night of the Creeps, Inner Space, Gremlins 2, Small Soldiers. And I did not know this until doing research for this episode. He was in Batman Mask of the Phantasm and the animated series legitimately the coolest. It's a shame that he has passed. Rip. Rip hard, dude. Uh, so I don't know what you even call this guy. Do you have any ideas? Dixon everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I honestly, that's better than mine. I was going to call him Murray Futterman just because I love Gremlin so much, but I think Dixon everything is a pretty good idea. So moving on, you had Belinda Belaski as Betsy, the little kid, the Howling Gremlins, Terminator, Inner Space, Gremlins 2, Small Soldiers. And when you have uh, Paul Bartel as Mr. Dumont, also Gremlins 2, when you have a lot of these characters just kind of came back. Really, the characters are negligible because the plot is just kind of a force of nature, <laughs> like the type of horror movie this is. So yeah, aside from the author, Betsy. which one is Betsy? Betsy's his kid. I'm blonde and I don't like swimming. I thought Susie was the kid. Is that? Yep. Yep. You are right. You are right. We're going to have to edit that out. She she might be one of the uh, counselors. She is. She's the hot one. The, the one that was nice to the kid. Well, there's two girls. She's the brunette one. Yeah. Yeah, she fine. She's the one who looks like Courtney Cox. Oh, okay. At least she did at the time. She dies. Yeah. She's the last one. All right. Yeah. Take that, Betsy. You've had it too good for too long. 
But yeah, the, uh, the only other note I would have as far as the cast and crew would just be that John Sayles, the author, the scribe, the screenplay artiste, was one of the sentries. He did a cameo, but nothing overly major. Dante was one of the uh, divers, too. Oh, yeah, it's a good point. Good job. He's diver number two, but I don't know which one is considered number two. <laughs> Probably the one made out of poop. It was hard to tell which. I think, I don't know. He was it's made out of poop, though. He might float. That'd be bad. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that pity laugh, Jim. It goes a long way. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha. I'm going to share that sweet, sweet Patreon money with you just for making that laugh, dude. (laughs) Is it time to get into the goddamn slay-by-play of this movie? Let's do it. So you're going to take us through just like ye olden times. All right. So the movie opens on like a foggy night and there's some backpackers uh, hiking through the night and they come across a restricted area sign and uh, like dumbasses, they go inside. Yeah. You know, honestly, it's one of those things where it it's so hokey and especially it's so similar to Jaws that it's like you really could have done something else. But there's titties and bush, so I can't be overly mad at it. Yeah. I mean, you know, it started off great. <laughs> I like how the chick, they they think this is like a pool, right? Yeah, right. And it's very obviously something industrial to begin with. Yeah, she's lucky she doesn't come out of this looking like the fucking Joker. I mean, sure, she comes out looking like a skeleton, but still. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't come out at all, but you know. Yeah. yeah, she did. He thinks that she bit him, and then he starts to die, and then she starts to die, which kind of has to happen because, you know, I remember when I first saw this, I was like, oh, there has to be somebody who lives to herald the coming of the apocalypse. And then you're like, oh, nope, that's not where this movie is going because there's a certain like degree of espionage or something. So yeah. it's really interesting. Do you like this intro? All things considered? Uh, it's it, it would be OK, but I don't like how they handled the two main characters meeting after the fact, which kind of ruins it for me. Uh, yeah, she's kind of like, I'm Lois Lane. And he's kind of like, I'm that period of Superman where he hates everything. And you know, the Henry Cavill one where he has a beard, that's basically kind of the start of this where he's like, I'm cranky boy. Yeah. Something when they met, it was just like, she shows up and kind of just bosses him into it. And there is literally no reason for this guy to help her. Right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Except for the fact that she has boobs. Yeah. Which they alluded to. You know, getting it on later, but yeah, when she's like, I'm trying to suck your dick off and he's like, oh, okay, then yes, you can share this blanket. Yeah, <laughs> it was so I don't know. that was that was even later on and just weird. But, but when they first met, I think it, it kind of made the beginning of the movie for me. Like, like it, they just rushed through the meeting of this and like she just takes him along and there's no like why. Like, I know she's there for business, but it doesn't it didn't seem like have any impact on the story story wise like character wise there's nothing there from either of them did you like the fact that she introduces herself while playing a jaws arcade game i did like that i thought that's hilarious i think that's probably the best like camp that you get in this movie yeah like, i i like that the kind of vagueness of her sending her and learning that she was like she's some sort of investigator person finder was okay it was just the the meeting of maggie and doug Brawny and stunt bizarre. tits, thank you very much. <laughs> Brawny and stunt tits. It was just kind of weird to me. They have like no chemistry the whole movie. It's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. what's happening here? The acting in the beginning too, it got better as it went, but the, the acting between them two in the beginning reminded me of Bad Taste. Oh, for sure. Where you're like, are you acting? Like, do you know what acting yeah. is? Yeah, no, it just, it, it seemed like they were just talking like <laughs> i didn't tell you i had an original nickname for her before i found out she had stunt tits it was going to be harriet the spy all right because she's investigating and she's a woman <laughs> so sexist i know so no shoes mcgillicuddy or whatever we call them he has an australian cattle dog much like max from mad max so we have to give him credit but you establish he's the only person that brawny man likes or even talks to because he gets the guy beer and that's the only contact he has to the outside world except for i guess his kid kind of yeah and later in the movie we hear he calls right to go get his kid there's um some trivia that says he in the novelization like he doesn't have any contact with his kid at all. Like he just knows that she's at the camp or something. Exactly. Which is makes this even weirder. Like, does she not live with him? Is I don't know. It's, it's weird. Yeah. It's sadder is what it really comes down to, where it's like he's just this depressed guy out and all. And you can see how the novelization would go from that if you're just taking like, you know, 
plot points, right? You don't actually have the underlying narrative, but I think it also makes it a lot more dramatic. You know, this guy who's so desperate to like protect his kid who he can't even see. And like, imagine if the first time that he sees her is like him identifying her corpse, right? Oh, oh man, that would ruin me. Right. But, uh, <laughs> As a father, I would not have the emotional capacity anymore. Yeah, I think that's my biggest gripe with this movie was just the not not properly explaining anybody his backstory or motivations. Yeah, this movie doesn't work after the advent of the cell phone because if if you have cell phones, you just call the camp and then you call the kid's cell phone because obviously the camp counselor guy who's like, nope, you're fake and drunk. But if you call the kid directly, she's like, what? There's there's Ra- Operation Razor Tooth is go. Fuck that. I already didn't want to go in the water anyway, dad. <laughs> but yeah, she, you know, Stuntits shows up and <laughs> takes this guy, you know, pulls him into her Jeep. She really just bullies him around. It's kind of great. Yeah. And the, the one little thing that we do get from him is he asks if his ex-wife sent her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty fun. Probably. Yeah, so we, maybe we should have called him alimony, right? Oh. Hey, yo. That's dark. So they he is like, they're just talking about, hey, where could the kids have gone? They probably were backpackers or whatever. And he's like, oh, there's the old army testing site that's been closed for five years specifically. And she's like, you're taking me now. And so he takes her now and it's pretty effective. Yeah. I like how he, in this movie, he kind of just like knows where things are and how to do things. Yeah. He drinks and he knows things. Hey, I made a Game of Thrones reference. Look at me. So when they get the facility, they're like going through everything. They find that it's still very active in terms of something going on. They don't know what it is. This is where you get the great creature that's a complete throwaway, which I almost kind of appreciate that it's so fleeting because it just catches your attention so much. And then this is where the wannabe Stacey Keach is like, nah, don't drain it. I'll attack you and gets his ass whooped. They uh, going back to the creature, though, there's a lot of cool like specimens and jars and stuff. Yeah, that was probably one of the neatest things about this movie was the design of it. And there was pretty neat. The little I don't even know what it the little thing standing up in the aquarium looking at them. The sock puppet thing. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff looked really cool. And then they, you know, they find warm coffee and they're like, oh, let's just continue to look around like very cavalier. (laughs) Yeah, right. So the guy attacks them to stop them from draining, draining the pool and they knock him out and drain the pool anyways. Take that old man. Yeah. So as they go and look at they find the skeleton. They're like, it could be a dog. And (laughs) old old guy steals their Jeep and crashes it and gets a boo-boo on his nog nog. And then basically they're like, oh, well, I guess we fucked everything up. And so we better take this crazy old man to like safety. And so they get on a boat that he made with his kid for a Huckleberry Finn project, if I'm not mistaken. Is that what happens? Uh, something like that. But I was pretty well made. Little yeah. rap. Sturdy. They take, take him down the river. And then there's a scene with a father and a son in a canoe. Ooh. That father gets eaten. That was hard to watch. Yeah, dude. They're like, I'm just trying to impart the wisdom and love of my son that my dad didn't give me. Oh my God, this bunch of people is eating me. It's almost like that's like, a, uh, that should just, that one clip should be a PETA commercial. I'd be like, if you eat fish, how would you like it if the fish ate you? Fuck boy. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix could do it because he's all about that now. Oh, I forgot the, the old man got his legs eaten. That's the one that he comes to first or they come to the boy first? Uh, no, they, yeah, as they're passing on the river, they pass the footless, then they keep going down the river and they're like, oh, well, we'll avenge you and tell somebody when we get a phone. And then they find the kid and that's where Dr. McCrankenstein jumps off and he's like, I know how these fish operate, but I'm still going to perilously just jump and be a human bridge for some reason. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he must have hit his head way harder than I thought. Yeah, that, that was, uh, kind of funny. Very interesting plot device. I don't know. But it is funny how he throw or he like jumps in and he's carrying the boy and he's getting like eaten alive. And then they pull him in the boat and he's like, he's got some red spots on his chest. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> That's about it. But he was dead. For sure. And then from there, this is where you keep having like the daughter montages where I was like, oh, I don't like swimming. Oh, I'm going to play darts with the main counselor's face. And oh, it yeah, just... It gets kind of tedious, but, you know, it's that plucky kind of bad news bears cuteness that was needed to happen to kind of like have a difference in tone. And so that's fair. 
I, I mean, it's good that you have the juxtaposition of, hey, we're taking this seriously to completely oblivious because it adds like tension. But I think that that's something where a $10,000 musical score did them a disservice because you could have a hell of a lot more tension, right? Like compare this to an episode of 24 with Jack Bauer. You know, this is not very stressful at all. <laughs> I think one thing talking about stress that I, I liked that they did was constantly going back to his daughter and their cancelers are constantly trying to get her to go in the water. That is a good one. Yeah. And so you're like, you're like, oh no, like, is she going to have to get in the water? And it wasn't like an immediate thing too. So it was like, it was kind of like the, the, the slow play of that. That every time you come back, you're like, oh crap, is she going to get in the water now? Is, is now the get, time. You know, it's now the time. And then no, it doesn't happen. And then it's now the time. And I thought they did that pretty good to drum up some suspense with her every time. But it's good because that's where you get like the care for the one counselor who ends up biffing it later on where she like tries to conspire with the kid to make a fake bandage because you're like, oh, she's cool. She's trying to help out. Oh, she's dead. I feel something. <laughs> so before the doctor died, we got some info out of him as to what they were doing. Operation Razor Teeth. Yeah, which is kind of funny. They mutated and bred them to put them in the water in Vietnam. Yeah, and it's weird because basically they fell backwards into these because he talks about the mutants were resistant to poison. They started cannibalizing each other and then they started breeding. And so this was not a deliberate thing. So I guess you still kind of do get that kind of like uh, nature uh, finds a way situation like your Jurassic Park, right? <laughs> yeah. And then stunt tits kind of like pushed back. <laughs> I like... Uh, did he have did the doctor have like a moment of like on the boat from her pushback he's like oh yeah what i'm doing is not a good thing let me sacrifice myself and like repair some of that to save this kid <laughs> is that what happened or am i, I think it's what's supposed to have happened if he was acting because <laughs> in this it's just like i'm grimacing because i'm being bitten by plastic fish whereas like if he had you know emotion or or depth or capacity he'd be like oh this is my penance for the evil I have wrought. But then from the kid situation where you don't get a kid killed, or you get kind of kid dying blue balls. Then it cuts to kids in an inner tube where they do get bitten. That makes me yeah. happy. Makes you happy. That was hard to watch. It was hilarious. It was just, do you, do you ever think about like the, okay, so here's the view of like the piranhas attacking like toes and feet and stuff like that. And like legs, like when you're underwater, it's like the same idea of me thinking about if I were to give myself a paper cut between the fingers. Oh, geez. Like that's what it does to me. Like that imagery is like, it gives me the creeps. That's like hospital or a pet cemetery when it comes to the Achilles tendon. I can see that for sure. Oh, yeah. No, that just gave me like my legs right now are like, bleh. <laughs> so one thing do you like this where it goes back to the raft and there's doctor guy and he's bleeding out and his hand is like slowly trailing in the water and then the fish don't attack the people they start to attack the boat so the people fall into the water kind of like that clever girl thing i, I actually really enjoy that every time yeah I, I thought i didn't get the sense that it was like clever girl i thought it was like they're just going after the blood like they think the blood is coming from the the raft and so they're attacking it and they're getting the the binding and stuff like that gotcha that's fair either way it's it's a way to pr progress there otherwise they're just going to float all the way down right yeah <laughs> and not really be in danger exactly you need some peril yeah, and then the dad decides to jump off and he runs to the dam because he's basically like, don't let the water out. And there's a very informative sign that indicates that when the horn is signaling, the water is being released. And I was like, thank you. That's exposition I needed without somebody being like, because I could only imagine if he was like running in pace. And like, I better get there before the horn sirens, because if it does, that means they're letting out the water. And so I like that they didn't <laughs> insult my intelligence. <laughs> well, this kind of goes back to him knowing where everything is right yeah like oh i know the dam it lets out every time like whatever and I, he knows exactly where to run to stop the person from my lowering. brawny chest hairs are pointing me in the direction of the dam <laughs> my brawny senses are tingling <laughs> yeah in plaid <laughs> so as they get there at they're at the dam this is where the army pulls up and we're like we've got it under control and it just reminds me of monster squad at the end where the army shows up because i have to mention monster squad in every movie because i'm a child and <laughs> they start throwing the bait in the water and then they start seeing oh geez they're eating stuff so they just start poisoning everything 
And right? this is where like a modern movie would be like, this is an ecological nightmare. And they're like, this is a minor inconvenience. <laughs> That's another thing too. I love how they, they just like glossed over. And it's not even glossed over. They just completely left out like that they were able to call the army and contact the exact right people that knew about this that show up to cover it up. <laughs> yeah. And immediately too. And it's weird because they like toe the line of being completely inept and on it, you know, because like when they're being held like kind of captive, this is where Stunt Tits does the Superman and he looks and then it's titties and then they like put him in a sleeping bag. It's like weird because he's inept, but then they're inept and they're not inept because they acted quickly. It's all just kind of a cluster. But then we end up with Colonel Colin Dick Miller. You find out they're in bed together, not literally, which would be so much sexier. They are business partners. Yeah, and I don't I don't understand this part of the movie. Like what comes of that? It basically just shows that the colonel should have done something, but he chose not to for personal gain. And because of that, more people from the festival died is basically what you get out of it. Okay. I mean, it's stupid, but <laughs> it's a bit heavy handed for sure, because it's like <laughs> this guy is evil and it's like, uh. but it also does solve a problem like how they got there so quickly. Oh, he was already here. He had a vested interest in the area. Of course, he's going to act quickly because he has a financial interest in that area. So they're arrested, right? Yeah. And then they end up in the jail side by side and she does her like fancy breakout routine. And she's like, oh, a plumber who I used to, who had to find because he was drunk all the time, taught me this. Did it ever work? No. Yeah. So she knocks out the guard and they steal the keys. Inflicting <laughs> fucking pants. traumatic brain injury on some old man so that they could get out. I like how they take his pants because they can't get the keys off. Yeah. Adding insult to injury, right? Yeah. So they, and then they throw it in the guy's, the other cop's face. As, as they're they driving by. <laughs> That's a good little revenge. And, so, so, and they, they make it to... Oh, did you like the fact that as they're driving away, there's tires screeching on a muddy road? I, I didn't even notice. Yeah, the sound <laughs> effect, I was like, that's not what happens at all, but okay. It cuts to the... This is where the kids get attacked, right? The camp? Yes, exactly. And the fish bites the camp boss right in the face. Yeah, yeah. So the camp boss was, has been like a dick throughout, right? And he then, hangs up on the dad he, and stuff, yeah. Yeah, and there's more backstory to that about him being a drunk... Like there's apparently in the book, he like showed up at the camp and like pushed him in the water and stuff like that, which makes sense because he also he when they get arrested, it's not just because of what they're doing now. It's because he was also drunk in public like last week, too. So he's not like this good guy. He's just kind of a vagrant piece of shit. Yeah, which makes me wish they would have gone into more. Does he ever see his kid? Like, I have no idea. I don't I, I just assume that he his kid was just at summer camp, not that he was some way estranged or never saw her. You know, I think, yeah, like I said about the novelization, I think it adds way more drama and tension if he's sitting there and like he's so desperate to save her because he's done everything else wrong. Like the one thing he can do is save her. Yeah. I mean, either way, it's still a dad trying to get to their kid and what he knows is going to be a shit show of a situation like a hundred percent. And so, you know, we can kind of get past a little bit of it because basically it comes down to the, the scuba divers get eaten, water skiers get eaten. This is kind of your montage, which is fun. You just kind of wish there was more of this stuff. But overall, in terms of narrative, it goes by pretty quick. But then you get the the smelting plant where he used to work. That's where they realize they're going to just make the water toxic and kill them that way. And so he goes and they have like this whole plan where he's going to go underwater and he has to turn this, you know, switch and he starts getting eaten alive and she ends up driving away. It's a little contrived, but do you like that part? I did like it. I, I, I didn't like how he got there because he, once again, he knows where everything is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but I like the overall like idea of it. I thought it could have been shot better in the sense of like, oh, this is where they're bottlenecking the things to kill them. And then the ridiculous idea of, of her gunning it while he's attached to a rope inside an underwater building. Yeah. When he's like ripping out of it, it's pretty great. <laughs> but but uh, it was that was cool. That was fun. Uh, and I, did, I did. I was like, it was a cool situation, too, where you're like, is he going to make it? Like, is what's going to get him? You know? Yeah. And, you know, I like the fact that he actually sheds blood and he actually is imperiled as opposed to just him having a hunky dory the whole time. So granted, these piranha act way slower on him than literally everybody else who's been encountered right. throughout the movie. But it's still something, which is nice. 
except for the doctor but yeah exactly uh two notes i wanted to have as far as like the effects here the bobbing corpse that appears is actually modeled after rob botten and when the cool camp counselor belinda Bolesky gets uh killed they actually shot that in a pool they used 30 fake piranha that were attached to her body with gaffer's tape and a bunch of people pulled her into the deep end of the pool with ropes to make it look like she was sinking into the water when in actuality she was moving horizontally oh, that's cool that was a good shot yeah, because originally, so Corman had it done because it just didn't have enough blood. When you think about like how much blood the human body actually has, like it's always kind of comical how much blood there is in these movies, like in Jaws when the kid just right. like torrential geyser of blood. But if you don't have it, it kind of gets lost. So I, it, it adds a lot of substance to it. One of my favorite gore effects as well is the the, the just the gross head is awesome. You got the guy with like the face kind of falling off. There's some really cute effects in this. It makes you just wish that it was more that and a little less, you know, going down the river kind of, right? Yeah, there definitely could have been a lot more of that. But I do like what they did. I I, I liked the guy camp counselor that was a dick the entire time. And he kind of redeemed himself by, yeah, at the end, saving a bunch of kids. Doing um, the right thing, yeah. while, While his face is, you know, getting chomped on and stuff. There was also a really fun moment when he gets back to the camp and his daughter is looking for him. She almost walks into a gurney. And I know it's probably a bit of a gaffe, but I really liked that moment. It just makes it feel so real because she's like, she is so focused on like, where's my dad? What's going on? I'm insecure. I'm a child. And, you know, she's so you know reacting to everything else. Almost like this trance. I Like, it's such a subtle thing that makes it seem so much more realistic than so much more of like what is failed acting in the rest of the movie. Yeah, I try. I'm, I have it open right now. I'm trying to see if I can find that, but I could. I don't remember seeing that. But um, anything that adds to that, especially in this movie where it started kind of rough with not very good chemistry and didn't seem like people were really acting. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, it's the little things add add to it. So ultimately, the movie ends with the Doctor Evil Pinky in my mouth, uh, where she assures, oh, "Don't worry, the piranha are totally dead. They can't survive in the ocean." And then the swarm sounds as the uh, waves are crashing, and that's the end. And a yeah. lot of people are like, "Oh, how is this a beach or creature feature?" Well, it ends in the ocean, and there are sand castles at the lake, which is a beach at the lake because it is the type of shore that we're talking about with sand. So, suck it. You've been lawyered. <laughs> so I gotta ask you, bud, is this a classic, a tragic, or a tragic? I am torn because I feel like I want to say it's a tragic. I don't want to say it's just tragic because I did enjoy certain parts of it. So yeah, it's easy for me. It's a tragic for sure. I, you know, it's fun, it's exciting. And I think a lot of my enjoyment of this film, because I obviously I found this after Gremlins, you know, I found it after The Howling and all these other prolific films that Dante had done. So, I mean, every time I see it, I'm always thinking about it and contextualizing it with these other amazing movies that he's done that I love so much. And so, I'll always give them this, you know, this movie is objectively pretty bad and pretty rough. But when you factor in, you know, the movie handicap of like, well, what he was able to achieve with what he had, the time, budget and everything. And then you also just see like what came out of it. It's really exciting to see. So if you've never seen it, it's a great time capsule to kind of see, you know, what Joe Dante did with 30 days and 600 grand. Yeah, it's not. I mean, if you're a fan of Joe Dante, I mean, the things that he's done, it's nice to go back and see one of the very first things he was involved in so exactly. it adds to it just like if you're a fan of Kane you go check out his Isaac Yankum DDS matches am I right dog it's a pro wrestling you're reference. right yeah. <laughs> 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 so bud is it time to call it tonight yes sir say goodbye to these goons beep beep fuck boys for Jim I'm Jake reminding you to go out there and do something you love and remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy I always love like the weird happenstances of the cosmos. So I found this band, Sissy Fit, which the name is delightful. The graphic design is delightful. The music is delightful. And I reach out and I get to speak with Art, the guitarist. And he's like, oh, my wife listens to your show. Your show is awesome. And just complete happenstance of just reaching out to people. Because we're clearly, clearly not famous enough to where we are known by all. We're not like the de facto horror podcast, especially in Southern California. So it made me super happy. 
and I'm really excited to feature them. Sissy Fit has been working with Moon Decay Records. You can go to moondecay.com, and they have been releasing some really cool vinyl pressing, cassette pressing of their EP Lilith that dropped in March of this year. And this track is called She Lilith Regrets You. And I think the best sales pitch for the band is Art Put It Birdie eloquently. We are a band with a voice and we have a lot to say about what's going wrong with the world. So please check them out, support them. They can be found at the links in the description of this episode. So enjoy She Lilith Regrets You. (laughs) 